0: As the kids are making their way out, you can turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be one in a pew there right near you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or a Bible you can read easily, please take this one. Um, It's yours. We'd love for you to have it. Um, but we want you uh, to have God's Word in front of you uh, as, we, uh, as we turn together to God's Word. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll be on page 950 this morning, Romans 15. It's been our practice uh, since the, the very inception of this church um, to begin every new year on the topic of prayer. It's been a little delayed this year. I wanted to finish off... Colossians and then as we started this series called the church talking about what do we do and why do we do it uh, it seemed very appropriate to begin with baptism and uh, celebrating uh, five baptisms together and of course flowing naturally out of that then communion and uh, looking at the two ordinances of the church that obviously um, point back to to the same thing the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf as we walk through that Uh, and so this week finally um, we come to the topic of prayer. Why do we pray? We have this list of distinctives, the, the banner that you would have seen on the way in, these six defining features of who we are and what we value and what we're about. And number one, very intentionally so, number one on that list is prayer. We are a church that believes in, that values, that prioritizes fervent prayer. Prayer that is dependent and expectant we gather every Sunday morning, 1025, to pray for this service. That's mandatory for everyone who's serving and anyone is welcome to join. We, we want to pray that God would be at work. Once a month, we clear everything else off the calendar and we gather together for corporate prayer. Um, small groups are, are, have a, a large chunk of their time dedicated to, to prayer. Why? What's the big deal? Well, to answer that question, I want us to look at at Romans 15, verses 30 to 32. And we see here Paul um, urging the church at Rome to pray for him. And and his passionate appeal, um, we're going to see why we pray and what we pray and what happens when we pray. So uh, before we read this passage, I want to give you a little bit of kind of background and and history as to how we got to this place. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome, uh, a church that he had never personally visited, but from his travels and people moving, he knew a lot of people there. Um, And yet he he wrote it from the city of Corinth. If we could throw that map up, there it is. Um, What you're looking at here is the Mediterranean Sea. So so down to the south, that's the, the Egypt and the top of Africa you were to go up to the north, that's kind of Eastern Europe in there. That's kind of where we are in the world. Uh, And uh, you'll see that middle peninsula. The lines, by the way, are Paul's missionary journeys. The middle peninsula down near the bottom is the city of Corinth. That's where uh, Paul was in Greece. Um, And he wanted to visit Rome. He wanted to get there to encourage the saints, to to encourage the church there, and from there to head further up uh, into Spain. But first, he had a job to do. He was on his way back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you'll see, is on the bottom right corner, about as far on this map as you can get from Rome. So he is going the other direction. And so um, before he leaves Corinth, he, he sends this letter off to Rome because he's already most of the way there to kind of let them know, hey, I'm coming to visit. I want you to you know, have this, this body of teaching, of, of doctrine. I want you to know that I'm, that I'm coming soon. Um, but first... His plan is to go back to Jerusalem because there was a famine in uh, Israel and the church in Jerusalem was in need. And and so Paul, as he had traveled through uh, Achaia, that's the area up above Greece and through Greece, he had collected offerings um, from the the Gentile churches to bring back to help the church in Rome to encourage the saints there. Uh, And so here he's writing this letter and as he comes to near the end of the letter, he's asking them to pray for that journey as he heads back to Jerusalem. So that's, that's what we're looking at. Um, Romans 15, I'm gonna start reading in verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service For Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to your word so thankful that you have given us your truth, written down in black and white, that we can come to it again and again, that we can study it, that we can know it. And yet, God, we just confess the hardness of our hearts. Lord, would you give us eyes to see your truth? Would you help us to come together um, in humility before your word? Lord, we cry out with the disciples from so many years ago, teach us to pray. Lord, we value prayer, and yet, God, we confess we are so often weak in prayer. Would you use Your word this morning, your spirit be at work, that you would make us a people of prayer, that you would build us up in this, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, as we look at this passage, the first thing we see here uh, is why we pray. Paul pleads with them, he's using strong, passionate language, I appeal to you, brothers. Other translations have, I urge you, And then he points them to the the motivation to pray, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the the weight behind this. Um, There's two there, actually. The next is I urge you um, by the love of the Spirit. We'll get to that in a minute, but one at a time. Um, So first he urges them by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is... The weight behind it, that's the motivation, that's the, 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 the push to this urging to pray. Now on one hand, we have to recognize it is only by the Lord Jesus Christ that we can pray, right? Like that's it, that's our only hope to come before God. Um, this very letter to the Romans is so clear on that. If we're just to, to scan through the, the whole thrust of this letter, Romans 1.18, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, We are sinners and God is wrathful against sin. You you don't just walk as a sinner into the presence of God and begin asking for things. That doesn't end well. Um, He goes on to say, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's us, we've turned our backs on God. We've gone our own way. We essentially have declared our freedom from Him and said, "I will be God. I will do what I want to do." And for that, we deserve His wrath. Romans six twenty three. Then, many of you have memorized this as kids, and for good reason. Has this just mind blowing contrast? These two things happen. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. That's what we. Deserve the wrath of God in hell, eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our only hope. This free gift of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that we have life, it's only in Christ that we have any, any chance of standing before God for any purpose. Because of his death on the cross, the forgiveness of sin. We who were God's enemies have been reconciled to God, have been made his children, and then, like children of a good father, were welcomed into his presence. It is only by our Lord Jesus Christ that we can pray. And that's good and right, and we ought to recognize that. And yet his point here, I think, is one step further than that. Not just that this is how you can pray, but this is is why you should pray. This is what ought to motivate us to pray. He says, I urge you, I encourage you by our Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ ought to motivate us to pray. Think about it. Why do you pray? What motivates you to pray? If we ask that question a little more honestly, maybe oftentimes it's, well, why do I lack prayer? Why do I so often lack motivation to pray? We pray when we're desperate, as the world crumbles around us, we feel insecure, there are things that cause us fear and anxiety, then we're drawn to our knees, then we pray. But as soon as that moment of crisis passes, we get back to our oblivious, self-reliant life. Why? Why does it come and go? Why do we so easily lose the desire for prayer? Well, one of the reasons is because our motivation is wrong. If our motivation to pray is built on a a foundation that fluctuates on something that that comes and goes, um, then then the the consistency and the depth of our prayer will follow. There's only one source of motivation that's not only compelling enough to, to drive us to meaningful prayer, Uh, but also dependable enough, unchanging enough to to sustain that prayer. And that's the motivation of Christ. Paul says, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ, looking at, reveling in, meditating on who Jesus is as our Lord is what ought to drive us to prayer. That ought to be what moves us into the presence of God. Our, Our prayers should not be Primarily motivated by our physical needs. Our temporal trials or passing fears or failures. Certainly those are good and right things to to bring to the Lord. But that, that should not be our ultimate motivation to pray. Our prayer should be motivated by the unchanging truth. That our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to be sought after. That never changes. He is worthy. No matter what I Lack on this earth, no matter what causes me fear or anxiety or trials or troubles, my greatest need is more of Christ. And at the very same time and to the very same degree, when everything in my life is going great and I lack nothing and it's smooth sailing, my greatest need is more of Christ. Psalm 73, uh, 25, 26, David says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that, my portion. He is my full helping. He is the meal that satisfies. That's what I need. I need more of God. Psalm 63:1. David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Listen to this, because your steadfast love is better than life. Do you believe that? Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David gets it. God is my portion. He is my hope. That's what I need more of him. He is worthy to be sought after. Again, that doesn't mean we don't pray about these other earthly things, these temporal trials, but our fundamental foundational motivation comes back to rest in in the nature and character of God, of, of who he is knowing that he himself is the source of all true and lasting joy and satisfaction. And so we come by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in in the Lord Jesus Christ that we see that nature and character of God most clearly. So why do we pray? We pray because our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. He's worth seeking after. He's worth knowing. He's worth pursuing. Secondly, Paul adds this other layer of motivation. He says, I appeal to you by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, as we talk about prayer, there's a helpful little theology of prayer just kind of dropped in here. Um, As you look at this passage, did you notice the Trinity? It's all there Um, so often. I encourage you, just mark those out as you see it. People talk like, oh, there's no Trinity in the Bible. Get real. It is everywhere it's everywhere and here it is again by our lord jesus christ by the spirit in your prayers to god um helpful like i said little theology of prayer um it's a bit of a a cultural thing we tend to teach our children to pray dear jesus i I think because jesus is kind of the most tangible understandable graspable person of the trinity we feel like that's a little easier for them um But the model here, and I think throughout Scripture, uh, is that we pray to God the Father. He's the Father. That's His role. He is the the sustainer, protector, supplier. He's the one to whom we bring our needs and our cares and our desires. We pray to the Father. But as we just said a moment ago, we, we only come to the Father through Jesus Christ. It is by His work on the cross that we have access to the Father, that we can pray. That's why we say, in Jesus' name. I hope that doesn't just become an empty, hollow thing that we say, but but recognizing that we come um, in the name of Jesus. We come to the Father through the Son, and then we pray by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who, who works in us as we pray. Romans 8, uh, 8.26 says, the, the Spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray. He empowers us. The whole Trinity is is involved in our prayers, but each with their own role, each with their own place. And so biblically, as we think about prayer, we pray to the Father, through the Son, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And and I think that is exactly what Paul is talking about here um, when he urges them to pray by the love of the Holy Spirit. Um, On the face of it, as we read that, Sentence that's a little bit confusing. What does he mean? It's, it's so imprecise, and there's lots of debate around this. The love of the Holy Spirit. Um, it could mean three things, really. Um, it, it could be the love that we have for the Holy Spirit by the love of the Spirit, or it could be the, the love the Holy Spirit has for us, or um, the love that the Holy Spirit puts in us. So, you know, any three of those could kind of fit in this phrase the love of the Spirit. Um, If we push a little deeper, um, the Greek grammar actually doesn't allow the first one. It doesn't allow for the Holy Spirit to be the object of our love. That would be in a different noun tense there. You can talk to me after if you want more on that. Um, So we're left with these two options. Either Paul is trying to motivate us um, by the love that the Holy Spirit has for us, or by the love that the Holy Spirit puts in us for others. Neither is wrong. Um, but I think the second one is what makes most sense here is we'll look at the context. Uh, Paul has already talked about uh, earlier in this letter, talked about the love of God in us by the spirit. Listen to Romans 5:5. 5, 5. He says, "Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us." The context of uh, these verses in chapter 15, if we go back to, to verse 22. Paul is trying to unite the church. He's trying to to bring about healing in the church. The the Gentile believers serving the Jewish believers with this gift of love. And his hope is the Jews would respond well to that gesture. That's why he's appealing to them to pray. Because of the the love that they should have for one another. Their love for the church. And so um, I, I think that's what he's pushing for here. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit that that we have a love for one another that draws us to, to prayers like this one. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who makes us new in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that, that, that adopts us as children of God. It's by the Holy Spirit that we become brothers and sisters together in this unique family and, and, and that ought to produce in us a love for one another, a supernatural Holy Spirit-given love. A love for the church. A love for the people in the church. Listen to the the language of Philippians 2. I absolutely love this passage, the way that, that Paul speaks about the church. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. That's love. The encouragement that is in Christ and the, the participation that we have in the Holy Spirit should produce in us not, not just a tolerance for one another, not just kind of a mutual peaceful existence, But love, unity, deep, meaningful desire for the good of others, to serve one another. That's the love of the Spirit for for one another. And and that should drive us to the most selfless act, looking not only to our own needs, but the needs of others. And that's prayer. So as he's asking for prayer for these churches and for himself, he's motivating them. Remember the, the love that the Holy Spirit has put in you for the church. Do you see that? Do you sense that? That's why we should pray. Motivated, um, first and foremost, by the, the unchanging glory of Christ. The wonder of who he is, our eyes, our hearts set on him. And then flowing out of that, this supernatural love for the body of Christ. This love for the saints. Does your prayer life reflect that? Do you hunger for more of Christ? Do you think about him that way? Do you desire him? in a way that draws you to prayer? And are you driven by a love for the church, a love for others, feeling deeply the the needs and the burdens of your fellow Christians? Our prayers are often weak and sporadic when when they're shallow and self-focused. Let your prayers be driven by this desire for the glory of Christ and this Holy Spirit given love for the church. That's that's why we pray. That's what Paul is using as leverage to encourage them to pray. Secondly, let's look at what we pray. What we pray. Now, this passage isn't prescriptive. This isn't a rule of how we should pray. He's not telling the church how to pray, um, but in it we see Paul's heart. We see what is priority for him, what's important to him, and he urges the church in Rome to pray this, looking at verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, at first glance, this seems pretty pretty run-of-the-mill. It's a prayer for safety, a prayer for acceptable service, a prayer that he'd have success, but there's more under the surface than that, looking at the context here of what's going on. Paul's not just praying for his own benefit. This is not just about his physical protection or, or, or for the sake of himself. Um, that's not what this is about. After all, this is Paul, the apostle. This very trip heading back toward Jerusalem. Um, he was speaking to the elders along his way in Ephesus. And, uh, and he says this, Exodus, or F, um, Acts 20, um, Verse 22 and 23, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He knew it was coming. Every city he goes to, the Holy Spirit is warning him, it's coming, suffering's ahead. And and that continues to play out. As he went on his way, uh, he went on to say, um, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So it's not about me. I don't care what happens to my body. I don't care what happens to my life. What I care about is this mission that I've been given. That's what it's all about. From Ephesus, then he traveled down to the city of Tyre. Acts 21, 1-6 to tells us that the believers there um, by the Holy Spirit are pleading with him, don't go to Jerusalem, it's not safe, it's not going to end well. They're worried about him. They all come down to the, to the shore as their ships, ships set sail and they kneel together in the beach, pray with him to send him off. From there they came to Caesarea. Acts 21, 10 it says this, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea Weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. He he is going to Jerusalem knowing the cost, knowing it will not be easy. Um, He knew he was going to suffer. He knew he would be under attack and he walked willingly into it. And so as he asks the Roman church to pray for him... Um, that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Uh, I have a hard time believing this is just like a personal safety thing. If that were the case, he would have just not gone. He could have avoided that quite easily. Um, He's asking that that he would be delivered in such a way that he could finish his mission, that he could complete the task that the Lord had sent him on. For the sake of the church is what he's praying for, that, that he'd be able to finish his gospel mission. And that's clearly what he means in the the second part of that request. He prays he'd be delivered from the Jews in Judea, but then that his service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints. So um, as we've been talking about, um, this service for Jerusalem is this uh, this offering that he's collected. We see it back at Romans 15, uh, 25, 26. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. So that's the the service he's talking about. And we think, well, why wouldn't that be acceptable? Why is he concerned about that? Like he's bringing the money. Um, Why is he so worried about this gift? Well, the reason he's asking for prayer for this is that there was a deep divide in the church. As you might expect, the saints in Jerusalem were Jewish believers primarily. Those who had grown up following the the laws of Moses and going to the temple and making the sacrifices and and keeping kosher and doing all of these things as they awaited the coming Messiah. But even though when Jesus came, he fulfilled that Mosaic law. He he brought it to completion. um, And so that that covenant of Moses is no longer in fact. Jesus was the the answer, the, the fulfillment of all of its Promises and so Jesus set that aside and put in the the new covenant in Christ. But those who grew up as Jews, those whose whole lives were wrapped up in that, um, they had a hard time accepting that. They had a hard time moving from old covenant to new covenant, and specifically, they had a hard time giving up the food laws and the circumcision. Those were things that they had always done, they saw as important as obedient to God. And so there's this tension, there's this discomfort as the, the Gentiles, these non-Jews who've been, who've been eating pork and doing their thing, um, they're now coming into the new covenant. They're, they're made part of this new family and they don't follow any of these laws and, and they feel like intruders. They feel like they're, they're destroying their heritage. The Jews in Jerusalem who are believers now are, are wrestling with that. And even though that is what Christ had brought about, the, the Gentiles were right in this case. To the Jews, they, they felt threatened. And even Paul, who was once this great, respected Pharisee who's now become the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, felt like a traitor to them. Can we trust this guy? He's given up our, our way of life, he's turned his back on all of our traditions. And so, as Paul is bringing this gift, to the gen- or from the Gentiles to the Jewish Christians. He's worried. Are they, are they going to receive this gift? Um, he's trying to heal this wound. He's trying to bring unity and peace. But I'm sure he's, he's wondering, um, are, are they going to see this as a, as a bribe? Are they going to see this as, as, as being less than the Gentiles? If the Gentiles help them? Is this an endorsement of Paul if we receive this money? Um, and, and so he's concerned about it. I love, um, Calvin points out, that even speaking of these misguided Jewish Christians who were clearly in the wrong, Paul still calls them the saints in Jerusalem. They were in error, holding to those old laws, causing painful division in the church, and yet Paul is generous toward them. He's kind toward them in the way he speaks. Now, he does have stronger words for the the Judaizers, the false teachers who are really forceful on this, but here in this confusion, he's gentle. He's gracious toward them. He wants to restore unity. He wants to bring healing. That is what he's asking these believers in Rome to pray for. Pray that I would be able to, to come and, and fulfill this ministry in Jerusalem. Pray that it would be acceptable, that it would, that it would have its desired effect of bringing unity to the church. Again, this passage doesn't teach us that this is all we should pray for, not by any means, but, but certainly something we should pray for. This was high on Paul's list is the unity of the church. Um, No secret, it's been a rough year, rough couple of years. Um, Unity has been difficult. We try to navigate some murky water, some things we've never had to navigate before. We have different people with, with different perspectives of what's going on in this world and different convictions of how we ought to respond to it. I don't think a single one of us has got it absolutely right. And once again, I am so thankful. This has not been more divisive in our church. This has not been um, a significant issue. I think for the most part, we have weathered the storm very well, though I know that has been a challenge and a struggle for many of you. I hope, I pray we're in the last weeks of talking about COVID and this is going to be a thing of the past, but maybe not. And let's just be honest, if that is the case, there'll be something next. Um, This won't be the end of our trials and the testing of our unity as the church, not by any means. So we need to continue to to learn from this, to grow from this. We need to pray for the church. We join Paul in urging you, pleading with you by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the, the love of the Holy Spirit in you for the church to pray for unity, pray for reconciliation. Strive together in prayer for for loving fellowship, for Christ-centered unity. We need to be able to identify what are primary issues. If if we disagree over who Jesus is, is Jesus God? Um, We have an issue we need to settle. We can't carry on. We can't move forward together if we don't agree on that. And secondary issues that maybe we can still serve arm in arm, understanding our brothers and sisters and, and loving one another in spite of these lesser disagreements. So um, that's a significant thing we ought to be praying for, praying for the unity of the church, praying for our our brothers and sisters in that way. Looking then at verse 32, we've seen why we pray and what we pray. Verse 32 then um, looks at what happens when we pray. It's such an interesting passage of Scripture. Paul says, pray so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. This short verse um, speaks of two aspects of what happens when we pray. It gives a a very interesting insight into both the the outward effect of prayer, but also an inward effect of prayer. Let's look first at the the outward effect. Um, When we pray, God answers. God answers. There's a A theological conundrum here that that those who are a little more intellectual get stuck in this infinite loop and not know what to do. Um, What's the relationship between prayer and the sovereignty of God? How do we we move forward in that? If God is sovereign, if he has this plan that he is certainly going to carry out, then what's the point of praying? It's just going to happen anyways. On the other hand, if prayer changes things, if prayer has actual real-world effect, then God is less sovereign. Then he's not really in control if he changes based on my prayers. And so we have this, this deadlock, and, and it comes because of two different um, misunderstandings, two different errors. The first, is, I think, is a, a shallow and, and overly simplistic understanding of the sovereignty of God. It's kind of one-dimensional understanding of God's sovereignty. And in that understanding, God just is sovereign and, 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 and it's set. Everything is absolutely deterministic. And, and so we try to rescue prayer and saying prayer doesn't change God. Prayer just changes us. It brings us in line with where God is already going. And, and that's not wrong. Prayer absolutely does change us. But as we look at Scripture, I don't think that satisfies Scripture. Scripture clearly teaches that God answers prayer, that prayer matters. Um, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God, and he will give it. Matthew 7.1. I think that's 7.11. It says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask. If you ask, God will give. James 4.2 has the other side of that. It says you don't have because you don't ask. Our prayer matters. God responds to prayers in in very real ways. There's a cause and effect nature to our prayers throughout scripture. The other error I think we have is a very feeble view of God. We assume that 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 if God answers prayer, then he must not be all that sovereign. He must be a little bit lesser. One author went so far as to say this. Listen closely. Prayer does not change God's purpose and plans, but it releases them and permits God to do in, for, and through us all that which his infinite love and wisdom wants to do, but um, but which Because of a lack of prayer, he has not been able to do. Prayer gives God the opportunity to do for us what he wants to do. We should not think that God can do whatever he wants to do without our aid. He cannot. So prayer then becomes us helping God. God has all these things that he would love to do, and he's just hoping someone will pray so that he's freed to do it. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible sitting back, wringing his hands, um, hoping for help, right? He will accomplish all his plans. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God hangs his very deity on this fact remember the former things of old, I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me, and he says this is what that looks like, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what it means to be God, to have a plan from beginning to end and accomplish all of it. Another example is Job 42, too. Very simple. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God does what God wants. He doesn't need us. He's not waiting on us. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, not a sparrow falls to the ground, nor a hair from your head without the Father in his will. That's sovereignty. Um, Psalm 19.1, 19.1, the dice is cast into the lap and the Lord decides it's every decision. Um, it's pervasive. It's everything. It's complete. It's unstoppable. It's unchangeable. He is absolutely the sovereign So then why pray? What happens when we pray? Is God sovereign or do our prayers matter? Well, verse 32, Paul says, yes, yes. He, he, he talks about the will of God and prayer side by side, not a hint of conflict. Look at it. He's asking them to pray so that by God's will I may come to you. Pray so that God's will would be accomplished. Now I think we can assume a little bit of humility here on Paul's behalf. I don't think he's claiming to know for certain God's specific will in this situation. And yet he's asking... He doesn't, he doesn't put God's will and prayer on, on opposition to one another. This comes back to having kind of a little bit of a fuller understanding of God's sovereignty and how that plays out in reality. Just because God has a plan and absolutely will accomplish it, will work it out in every detail, does not mean that we are somehow mindless robots in a descending cause of determinism doesn't mean that there's no such thing as as meaningful human decisions. They're they're not mutually exclusive. Doesn't mean that that God can't use people to accomplish those plans. James Boyce puts it this way, God does not only appoint the end to be obtained, he also designates the means to attain that end. God's plan includes how to get to that end. He has his plan and that plan includes how to fulfill that plan and if God has ordained to work in response to the prayers of his people then our prayers are meaningful and effective they matter in bringing about the will of God they matter the fact that God plans to answer our prayers does not make them less significant it makes them more significant I understand there's some grinding of the gears there if God is sovereign, do I have free will? If I have free will, is God sovereign? I, I don't think the Bible puts those together. I think it shows, obviously, that our choices matter, that our prayers matter, and that God is absolutely sovereign over it. God is sovereign over your free will. Um, you can think about that late into tonight, but I think that's what Scripture teaches us. So pray. Pray with passion. Pray with meaning and purpose and hope. It's not a hollow exercise. Pray trusting in the sovereignty of God. If I thought God was bound by my prayers, I would be too terrified to pray. But knowing that God wants to work in response to the prayers of his people, shows himself to be a a good father and and shows his his kindness and his grace as his people ask and he responds, "Um, we have hope in prayer. We're called to pray. In his sovereignty, God answers prayers. And he answered the prayers of the church in Rome. Acts 21.17, Luke was traveling with Paul, and and Luke says, When we came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. That's all that's said. I I read into that. I I think the gift was received. I think the the, the service was received gladly. The other prayer that Paul would be delivered from the unbelieving Jews and, and able to visit Rome, well... Some would say that was not answered because the Jews caused a a riot in the temple and as was prophesied, um, Paul was arrested and handed over to the Romans, carried off to prison. And yet the Lord was working in that. The Lord was carrying out his good plan. Um, Paul's arrest and and then his detainment by the Roman soldiers actually served to save his life from from a number of plots from the Jews trying to kill him. And so though, the, the will of God in the end. Um, is probably not precisely what Paul was praying for. The Roman church was praying for. And yet. He would write to the church in Philippi years later. From his jail cell. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know brothers. That what has happened to me. Has really served to advance the gospel. So God rescued him. And used him. Just not the way he thought he would. And that. After all, was his, his ultimate goal, to be used by God, to, to, to have this service be acceptable, to make his way to Rome? Um, that's what happens when we pray. The Lord answers, the Lord fulfills his, his glorious plans through our prayers. He doesn't answer every prayer with yes. He doesn't answer every prayer quite the way we think he might. His wisdom is unsearchable, greater than ours. But the Lord answers prayer. It's another thing that happens when we pray, and that's the internal effect of prayer. When we pray, God unites our hearts together. He tells them to pray so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now they were praying for unity in the church between the the Jews and the, the Gentiles. But look at the unity this creates between them in the church in Rome and and between between the church in Rome and Paul. He's telling them, join me in prayer for these things so that when God answers, we'll have joy together. We'll be refreshed together in them. This is what he's talking about over in in 2 Corinthians 1.11. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. When we share in the labor of prayer together, we share in the joy of the answer. Praying together unites our hearts in a a unique way. As we come together as children of one Father, we're we're bearing one another's burdens. We're we're caring for one another's needs and and taking those requests before our God. we, We entangle our lives together. We begin to weep with those who, who weep in sorrow. We rejoice with those who rejoice. As we pray, I you know many of you have been praying all week for, for John and Laura and little Owen. And, and, and as God restores them to hell, those who were desperate on their knees in prayer will have a joy together. As God answers, it's a tragic loss that in North America uh, in the church here, we see prayer as, as primarily, if not exclusively, a private thing. It's a personal thing. Don't get me wrong. You absolutely should have your own quiet, personal prayer life. But I think it's significant. As you look through the book of Acts, as you look at the early church, um, they prayed together. And it started before that, actually. The disciples say to Jesus, teach us to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed all the language is plural? He says, when you, and that's a plural you, when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When you pray, Jesus said you should pray together. It's all plural. The book of Acts carries on with that. 120 disciples, Acts 1.14, gathered in the upper room. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They're praying together. After the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. Acts 2.42 describes the church this way. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They had sermons. They had potlucks, they had communion, and they prayed together. Later, when when Peter and John were arrested in the temple courts, Acts 2.42, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, they they prayed together. Another occasion, Acts 12.12, as Peter's released from jail, It says, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. And there they were gathered together and praying. The early church spent a lot of time, um, not just praying for the same things, not just praying for one another, but doing it together. Corporate prayer was an essential part of their church life. I think we need to grow in that. Once a month, we have our our corporate prayer gathering called Fresh Encounter, and and, and it's a fantastic evening together. I'm so thankful for those who are are faithful to that. Um, That is a a rich evening of blessings as we come together. If you've never been out to that, um, it's just a sweet time, every time. And and I would encourage you to, to come to be a part of that. This week we're doing a little bit different. Um, I know schedules are hard and, and, and different nights of the week work or don't work. And, and so we're going we're gonna to push it out to the small groups. Gather with your small group in your regular time, your regular place, uh, and pray together. Um, just, to, just to change it up. If you're not part of a small group and you want in on this, talk to me. Talk to me after the service or send me an email and, uh, and I'll get you set up. We'd love to do that. You would be more than welcome to join any of the groups. Um, we want to be a church that prays. We want to be a church that prays together. But let's let's come back to the why. Because I know at least in my heart as we talk about prayer and and, and it's so easy to feel pressured by guilt, and and, and that's the work of the enemy. I I don't want to guilt you into prayer. There's no value in that. That would not glorify God. I don't want you to join in prayer because you feel like you have to. want us to be stirred up so we want to. Guilt is not a healthy motivation to pray. It certainly wouldn't be a a lasting motivation for sustained prayer. Don't don't rack your heart with guilt. Fix your eyes on Christ. Contemplate again his worthiness and sufficiency. How he is the the source and the, the sum total. He is our portion forever. He is what our hearts truly need. So it's fitting today as we come to the end of a sermon on prayer, we're going to close with communion together. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Reminding ourselves again of his service or his sacrifice on our behalf. The glory, the goodness of God on display on the cross. Josh, you can come up and prepare to lead. It's the glory of God that ought to ignite our hearts to seek him in prayer to pursue him, to want to, to know him. And so as we sing, the elements are going to be passed out. Um, and let's take some time to fix our eyes on Christ again. Just a reminder, again, that this is, this is for the believers here this morning. Um, if you're not a Christian, if, if you have not uh, confessed your sin and trusted in Christ and submitted to his lordship, this, this is not for you. Um, just let the elements pass. You Just observe, that's okay. For the believers here this morning, as we remember the cross, this is also a time of examining our own hearts. And I want to be clear on this. Communion, like the cross, um, is not restricted for perfect children of God, right? That's not what this examination is about. This time of reflection uh, is not at all to look inside yourself to see, "Am am I worthy to come to the table? No, you're not. That's why the cross is there, because we are sinful people who needed a sacrifice, who needed a savior. And so if you're burdened by guilt and shame and sin, do not let that keep you from coming to the Lord's table. That is precisely where you need to come. Come and be reminded again of the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you to cover our sin. That's exactly what communion is for. The warning of Paul in 1 Corinthians and my warning this morning is is not that sinners should not come to the table. The warning is that we should not partake of communion, as Paul says, in an unworthy manner. We should not do so in a way that, that fails to consider the body of Christ. If you call yourself a believer and you're living an unrepentant sin, disobedience to Christ that you're holding on to, that you're not willing to give up, that you're protecting, you're not willing to turn from it, that's a failure to understand the body of Christ. That's a failure to understand what happened at the cross. A hard and unrepentant heart is what is inconsistent with the practice of communion. And so specifically, Paul talks about the sin of of division between brothers. As one example, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness that you're holding on to and saying, no God, I deserve this. I'm not giving it up. That's, That's what needs to cause us to stop and question That's what was happening in Corinth. And as a result of God's judgment, some were sick and even died. And so this morning, um, maybe you need to repent. You need to surrender again to the Lord. And it might be that you need to pass on communion this morning and to live out that repentance and reconciliation. You may have to repent not only toward God, but toward another brother or sister and and reconcile that relationship. But let me reiterate again, um, those who were broken over their guilt and sin, to come in repentance, that's precisely what this is for, to be reminded again of the grace of God in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Um, because of his death, we have life. So would you stand? Let's sing together as we, as we contemplate this wonderful gift of our God.